This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World and the new book, Changeability, a work of nonfiction exploring how to navigate change with more effectiveness and ease. How do you find courage? How do you become more effective in navigating change? Find out when you join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, passing for normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal Season 3, where my guests are film and media producers Dale Bell and Harry Weiland of Media Policy Center. On this show, I engage with fascinating conversations with amazing changemakers and change writers about the very nature of change, the important personal and societal changes that they work with, and how to inspire you, the listener, in initiating or adapting to the changes that you want to see in the world or in your own life. So I welcome you, Dale and Harry. Good to hear you. Good, good to be here. I have so much regard for you and all of the amazing projects that you have uh, have created. And so before we begin, I want to just tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Great. Go ahead. Dale Bell and Harry Weiland created Media Policy Center as a nonprofit production center in 2002. Together, they not only have created numerous series of enlightening and educating media, but they have created a new model for engagement and action around public policy, health care, community, civic engagement, and the environment. Prior to founding Media Policy Center, Dale Bell was a producer of the Academy Award-winning film Woodstock and produced and directed for public television, including National Geographic. He has won the Peabody, two Emmys, three BAFTAs, and two Christopher Awards. Harry Weiland has produced and directed public television and multimedia for over 35 years, including several music documentaries and his acclaimed film on Johnny Cash. Harry and Dale have been awarded the esteemed Ashoka Fellowship for their innovative solutions to social change problems. So, gentlemen, a lot, a lot, a lot of experience between the two of you. Um... This show is all about change and about people who are, who are bringing change about. So I know that both of you have been working to bring about change through media. So I want you to talk about what you feel is the power of media to bring about change. Let's start there. Media. This is Dale. Hi. Media encompasses more than words or pictures. It's not an essay, it's not a picture, it's not a piece of music. What media enables a viewer to do is to take in with their soul storytelling that combines not only word, picture, music, sound effects, light, shadow, rhythm, complexity, so that it really assaults their being and makes them appreciate, understand, experience storytelling in an entirely different way. You have to 
at the beginning of your life, you have to make a choice of what kind of weapon you're going to use in order mm -hmm. to convey storytelling. In my case, it was the camera. Beautiful. Harry? Media is about connecting. It's about connection for good or for evil, as we have seen in World War II, as we have seen in politics, it can be used for both good or evil. Uh, we choose to leverage media for social change. People who have brilliant ideas sometimes don't really have the opportunity to reach a broader audience to affect the change of their idea. We connect with those individuals and plan a media model around what their message is. We've done this in special projects for PBS in the last, since 2002, whether it's elder care for and thou shalt honor, whether it's uh, how schools can become more green and efficient in growing greener schools, or how cities can improve quality of life through the series Eden's Lost and Found, or designing healthy communities. We look at topics that are topical and can affect change, and we try to create a program around it. Professor Dale, you want to talk about what we're working on now? Uh, not quite yet. Uh, let's amplify a little bit on what Harry has said. These are not just programs for broadcast, but every one of them creates a companion book that gets distributed at the time of the broadcast. Most of them create ancillary town hall meetings that localize the national issues uh, that have been created in the PBS uh, national broadcast so that local communities and coalitions and individuals across the country, one by one, can, through their local public television stations, gather together and decide how they can, as individuals and as minimal uh, or as many, uh, uh, tiny coalitions, can work together to create action. Because words are only words unless action is involved. Action is everything. So well, we hope that with this complementary media model that disseminates different kinds of information from an intellectual core to different social media platforms, that individuals, all walks of life, all geographies, all zip codes can access it and take it in and use it for their own individual or community benefit. And we know through example over these past, uh, my goodness, it's 16, 17 years, mm -hmm. years that this model works. It can be leveraged and change can ensue and it can be uh, documented. Well, this is, what's, this is what's so exciting because, you know, so often people will see a moving film or they'll read a story and they're 
they, they're very moved, they're very informed, and then they say, well, what can I do? What can I do? And you're not only providing some ideas for what people can do, but you're actually outlining, um, uh, not outlining, you're gathering people together. The first time I heard you mention this model was around your project, And Thou Shalt Honor, about um, care for the elderly. And um, I just thought it was brilliant how you not only showed the film, uh, you know, through on television, but then gathered these town hall meetings and then filmed the town hall meetings and put them on local television. And, you know, and can you tell a little bit more about what has happened as a result of that project in these communities that have um, worked with this film? Go, H. I wanted to go back to what you said earlier, and then I'll deal with that. Uh, In 2002, when we got together and created Media Policy Center, we realized that there was a revolution, and it was the digital revolution. And that digital revolution allowed digital capital, intellectual capital, to be reformatted and be designed as an entity, an integrated entity, media entity, uh, that could turn something like a four-hour or two-hour series on PBS and Thou Shalt Honor into something that was an initiative that could last for many years. Uh, What came out of and Thou Shalt Honor were, what, 160 coalitions, Sorry, I will correct you. Please correct me. 1,500, 1,500 local coalitions gathered around television stations to listen to this two-hour broadcast in October of 2002, just 14 years ago. Secondly, in addition to those local coalitions, there were 58 national partner organizations like AARP and NAACP, organizations that had representation in in multiple states. So uh, all of them were fed a continuous stream for four months prior to the broadcast of little short excerpts from the film itself. When we were, even before we were on the air, we had some people calling up and saying, this is so fabulous. What are you going to do as an encore? And we kind of looked at each other and said, Ah, uh, <laughs> all meetings. And then, you know, a series of 10 town hall meetings spun out from 2003 through 2008. I mean, that was what was so remarkable. Each one of them locally funded, each one of them locally produced, each one of them filled with uh, local content. Let's, let's uh, come to what we're doing now because I think the show is a half hour and I want to get to it to show you that how we've evolved the media model. We're working on three new projects and I'd like Dale uh, to talk about the VW uh, emission scandal project. Uh, He really sees the bull by the horns on this one. What's so special about that one, Dale? Volkswagen 
handed us on a silver plate an opportunity to see how the California regulatory system works, how Mary Nichols, who has been chair of CARB, both in Jerry Brown's first administrations and now in this one, how it functions and responds to a crisis or a scandal that VW committed deliberately starting about 10 years ago. We have an inside look. It's like a keyhole into this regulatory agency that deals primarily with public health and air pollution, but also has its fingers in all kinds of regulations from perfumes to perspiration to pollutants. It's an opportunity uh, to allow the rest of the state, the country, and the world to see why California leads in this global climate change initiative mm -hmm. because you've got the duh spotlight of VW shining on the inside workings of California Air Resources but, Board. But how did the story break? It broke just a year ago in September when when publications all around the globe said VW was cheating and cheating deliberately. And I called Mary Nichols and asked her, was this the time to begin to look at the California history of environmental activity that began in July of 1969 with the Santa Barbara oil spill? Wasn't this an opportunity to really assess and evaluate and illustrate uh, how regulatory agencies can function. This was the opportunity that uh, presented itself then and carried us to the Paris climate talks in December with Governor Brown and the California delegation. What, what's the, I think the end result of this project will be <clears throat> and has had an absolutely extraordinary impact on VW, on the use of diesel fuel uh, on the acceleration of the use of electric engines in cars. New technology. Because how California goes, the rest of the country goes. And we think that uh, that future is being built here in California. And that's the spotlight of that project. And so what... Uh, what is the model that you're going to be working with beyond beyond the film or the television uh, broadcast of this? What, how will you then take this out further in the model that you work with? Throughout the state, we will cause to happen uh, localized mini town hall meetings about what people can do in order to uh, improve their health, their public health, and to decrease the air pollution and what they can do on a national basis to contribute uh, their energy uh, towards those goals. Also, if CARB sets new standards for, for diesel fuel and pollutants, the rest of the country has to follow because there are 38 million Californians. And we certainly have a tremendous impact on the marketplace. And what it does is it focuses on low-income communities who are, by and large, the worst uh, inhalers of pollution because they're living around areas that are freeways, railways, ports, and other modes of Refineries, transportation. Refineries, yes. Uh -huh. right. 
Yeah. So um, I know that both of you are very passionate, involved, concerned men. How do you choose? There's a lot of stories and a lot of issues out there. How do you choose the ones that you want to pursue? Well, we read a lot. <laughs> we listen to public radio a lot. Um, <clears throat> we came to uh, Our Kids, which is a, a major project, which is a book written by Harvard professor and, and author uh, Robert Putnam about the widening opportunity gap between rich and poor children. Mm -hmm. And we went to see him. We uh, won a competition for the rights to do the PBS series, the proposed series. For the last year, we have been doing research and development on the project. What are the issues involved? Is it parenting? Is it K through 12 schooling that's not equitable? Is it um, criminal justice? Um, what are the inequities and how they can be narrowed to give our all of our kids a chance the way Putnam talks about his upbringing in uh, Port Clinton, uh, Ohio, uh, in the 1950s. And um, that's how we do it. It's ideas come to us, people come to us, we read, we listen, we decide, and part of it, of course, relies upon funding. We'll float a dozen ideas in the course of a year, if you will, and some of them will actually attract funding, and those are the ones that we obviously have to go after in order to preserve this. Our Kids is one major project. He wrote uh, Bowling Alone. The second one really evolved from Harry's reading an article in the New Yorker magazine. And that, that is the opioid crisis, which uh, <clears throat> is a staggering public health crisis. It is one, one physician called it the greatest health crisis this country has ever experienced. Uh, let me correct and say it's the greatest man-made health epidemic in American medical history. Over 30,000 30, people die each year of overdose of opioids. 250,000 have died in the past uh, 15 years as a result of this, actually 20 years, as a result of the opioid OxyContin uh, epidemic. And, well, and not just died, but also how many people suffer addictions to these opioid drugs, you know, uh, when they're given them quite innocently for pain for after surgery or, you know, something and then find that they're addicted. Right. So, millions of those people. The, the way it started, I mean, and, and it's, <clears throat> it's, it's something really moves us. One, and um, in this article I read in, in the New York Times was a profile of a 16-year-old girl from Springfield, Massachusetts, who was given 30 days supply of OxyContin when she had her two, uh, four of her wisdom teeth taken out. And after the 30 days, she became addicted. She was caught stealing from her mother's purse. She was thrown out of the house. She became homeless. She was found a year later, frozen to death, on a uh, park, 
park bench opposite City Hall in Springfield. I read it, and I said, there but for fortune. I have a, a daughter who was almost that age at the time. So you read and you follow up, and soon Dale and I made contact with a Dr. Andrew Kolodny, who was head of a group called PROP, or Physicians Against the Overprescription of Opioids. Mm -hmm. And he then introduced us to other physicians. One of those physicians, Dr. Bill Resnick, uh, was somebody who had access to financing and gave us our first grant. We have filmed about 90% of the series. Uh, I'll be in Kentucky, uh, just across the river from Cincinnati, on Tuesday filming a candlelight march that's sponsored and will be participated by parents and spouses of people who have died from overdose, and they're going to be over 100 people. This is a national issue, and we must do something to stop this epidemic. So one of the things that we talk about is how can we prevent and how can we educate? Right. After, you know, and, and you incorporate that into your, into your proposal and into your planning as you begin to develop these kinds of projects. And in the case of the opioid, uh, there are many people, including Andrew Kolodny's group, the PROP, uh, who will help us to get the word out and to educate, and we're even contemplating creating an app uh, that can be accessed instantly uh, if a family or a friend or a neighbor or whatever, whomever, uh, believes that they have someone who is in crisis and they need to be able to identify immediately what to do, where to go, how to get help. Right, so again, using or utilizing all the media possibilities for educating and um, and taking action, like you said, starting from the story, starting from a really good story, and then finding all the different ways that you can to bring that story forward. Yep, and um, we just spoke to the author of the companion book, Wendell Potter, who, <clears throat> what, what is the book he wrote on healthcare scandal? Um, don't do that. Well, anyway, I forget the he name. He is a whistleblower who dealt with uh, health insurance uh, backstories when he was in the uh, health insurance uh, business as a PR person and finally woke up one day and said, why am I trying to justify what, these, what this company is doing? Uh, let me get out and blow the whistle. And so he did and was honored as a whistleblower and has now joined our team as uh, a, an author of the uh, companion book for opioids. Oh, that's fantastic. So you are a nonprofit organization, which True. is unusual for a production company or a full-blown production company, but you, you operate as a nonprofit. So how did you arrive at, at that model and how does that work? Well, uh, it, it works when you don't make it any works money. When, when it works. How does it work when it works? <laughs> uh, we decided that 
uh, as we were doing and thou shalt honor, we had engaged a fiscal agent, uh, and we ended up paying the fiscal agent, I don't know, 5% of the money that we raised. And we had raised 2.4 million bucks, so they made, I don't know, something like $190,000, $200,000 being a fiscal agent. We needed them to give us credibility, but on the other hand, we didn't need them to take uh, 5% of our budget. So we decided right then and there, even before we'd completed the project, uh, that we would abandon a, quote, for-profit model and create a 501c3, which is what we are. It makes it uh, for us. Uh, we're not in this to make a huge profit. We're in it to make our salaries and to pay other people and to have a team who joins us and is loyal to us. But on the other hand, it's also easier for corporations and foundations to be able to give us funding, uh, individuals as well, because it's obviously a tax deduction, but it's also uh, they believe that we're not out there uh, doing it for the money. We're right. not like, you know, uh, profit people. Right, and does this did this come because both of you worked so much in public television? Is that how you arrived at it, because you were working in public television? I will say yes to that. <laughs> I would say yes to that as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Public television serves, informs. It's not out to make a, a buck. It's out to be honest, integral, uh, sincere, accurate, uh, and soulful. Uh, and I think that's what we're trying to emulate. Well, I, I want to modify that. Uh, there have been big changes in PBS and public television. And... Um, just as commercial distribution has become fragmented, PBS has become fragmented. And that's opened an opportunity for independent producers to raise money for projects like this and get primetime airing uh, through either the PBS network or NITA. And that wasn't always the case. Right. You both have really learned how to use the public television network system uh, for what it, how it can serve you best in terms of distribution, right? And you're, and you're raising your money independently from, from public television. And it's also evolving now with the growth and impact of, of a Netflix or an Amazon or, or EFX. Uh, <clears throat> streaming is the new revolution. Uh, and we are studying and adapting and working with companies that stream our material and, in fact, uh, talking to them about these projects as well. So there's disruptive technology at play, you know, constantly, and we have to adapt or we'll perish. What is amazing uh, to me is that Harry and I have been working together for 17 years. We've known each other since 1968 in New York. This is the longest business relationship that either one of us have ever had, and it's just built simply on trust, on loyalty, on honesty, on transparency, and on uh, companion soulship, I, I, I guess I have to say. Well, we couldn't do it by ourselves. These are hard projects to make happen. And uh, <clears throat> in this case, this, the synergy pr provides 
the stability to keep at it and be persistent and to constantly act as detectives, you know, to, to how are we going to do this project? Where are we going to find the, the funding? Don't give up yet. You know, and it's, what it's, what it does is it every every morning uh, we know that the other has our back. And even today, for example, to illustrate how diverse and um, uh, I'll say uh, uh, splintered public television has become for a good cause, uh, we had a half-hour conversation with the head of the Wisconsin Public Television Network within the state because they want to through their radio and their television throughout 78 counties in the state. They want to take on our kids and help to create coalition building and partnership and long-term rollout of new stories as well as potential town hall meetings just within the state of Wisconsin. And they're a leader in outreach. So they can go to the other 300 stations in the network of, uh, not the network, in the membership of public television and say, we're doing this. Can you follow? Here's our model. Do you want to emulate it? Let's build a template together so that we can together as public television stations and communities help to get Bob Putnam's Our Kids messaging out broadly and deeply across this country and turn it into action. Oh, oh. This is what's so important. It's solutions, not just words. Also, another phrase that we should use about, if you're going to talk about streaming, you're going to talk about on-demand programming. VOD. And that <clears throat> is something that turns a broadcast into something that is timeless, nonlinear, and could last for many years, as our projects have demonstrated, and I think it's going to even be more impactful when streaming becomes even uh, more available to more people, rich and poor. It is incredible, the work that the two of you do. It, it really is, and the way in which you go about it and how you keep evolving and you take you take us, whether it's a story or whether it's a, it's a form of outreach, and you say, how can we use this? How can we make this work? How can we put these people together? How can we put these ideas together? Um, I have such admiration for, for what you do and how you keep at it. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. And if you have any good leads, let us know. That's right. Let's make a big pitch for um for some from for some donations here. Um and so with that, if you could tell people how to find you, how to learn more about you and where to give you money for these amazing projects, that would be great. Okay. Uh, our website is www.mediapolicycenter.org. Our phone number is 310-828-2966. And once you're on the website, you will see that there are tabs and pull-downs, and one of them happens to be donate, and one of them happens to be biography, and one of them has to be shop, and one of them has to be uh, previews of the initiatives that we are in the process of developing right now, including Eyes on the Prize, the Civil Rights Series. So... This is a great place to uh, browse, to review, 
and to become inspired, we hope. Mm, absolutely, absolutely inspired. Dale, Harry, thank you so much um, for all that you do, for all you do for this world, and um, for talking to me today. Thank you, Sharon, for asking us. Thank you. Always. Enjoyed it. Always. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about Changeability, the book, and about all of the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, navigating change is the new stability.